So it's been a while, but uh, we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verse 38 through 50. 38 through 50. Mark chapter 9. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for a house to gather. We thank you for calling us out of the world into your presence, for um, making us one with yourself, for teaching us uh, not only what your name is, but um, what your character is like. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us the opportunity to come here and to worship you, and by worshiping you, becoming more like you. We thank you for your son. Uh, You know, Lord God, everything that we're struggling to believe in our own hearts and minds. You know exactly where we are um, in our walk with you, and, and you know exactly the cure that each of us need. You know the comfort that we need, and you know the conviction that we need. And I pray, Lord God, that this morning would be full of all three. We thank you, and we praise you in the name of your son, and amen. So, <laughs> so I'm reading this biography of Michael Collins, and for those of you who don't know, he is the founding member of the Irish Republican Army. Uh, that's an odd way to start. Um, we're going to Ireland, my wife and I. She's jokingly calling it the Irish Republican Army Tour. Um, <laughs> I'm not yet planning on starting a guerrilla war. I'm just fascinated by the guy. But in, what's uh, interesting is there's a period of his life in where he was proclaiming a, a, a message. And uh, the, the biographer doesn't want to go over every speech he ever gave and every letter he ever wrote. But, and it covers a m- multiple years. And so what they did is they took all these different quotes and just put them together in one paragraph. And you're thinking, well, this covers three years of this guy's life. But, but they want you just to get a sense of the kinds of things he was saying publicly. And as you're reading it, you're like, yeah, he's, he's using similar phrases. He's using similar words. He's, so he just had this message on his mind all the time. What in the world am I talking about? Right? That's what you're thinking. Well, this section here that Mark records is something very similar. I, I've often mentioned that the way that the biblical authors write history is not like what you would find in a history section at Barnes & Noble. So all of these things that he says here, all through the end of Mark chapter 9, were not necessarily said at the same time. They may not even have been said in the same year. But Mark is trying to make a point. And, if we recall, most of where Mark's source material is Peter. And Peter, as we've seen in his sermons, summarizes huge sections of Jesus' life down to just a few sentences. The other thing is, after years, he wanted people catechetically to remember the things that Peter was teaching them, because then it wasn't as easy to just walk around with a book with the sayings. And so he he would um, compose it in such a way, the sayings of Jesus, that they would be very easy to remember. So if you look now with me, uh, we're going to go back to verse 37. I'm going to show you. This is a very clever thing that has been done here, and it's Peter who did it, and Mark has written it down. So if you look in verse 37, it says, in my name. If you look at verse 38, it says, in my name. And in verse 39, it says, in my name. Now, what he's doing there is that's almost like the introductory idea. What you have to remember is that what occurs is done in Jesus Christ. And then you can recall what the three things that were done in Jesus Christ. Then if you go down, you see that he... he, has in verse 43 the word hand and foot in uh, verse 45. In 47, he has eye. So he's covering the whole body there, right? Because if, if you go from the hand to the foot to the eye, you're covering the whole person. And then he has the word hell, one, two, three times, fire, three times. 
And in the last bit there, verse 49 and 50, he's connecting the fire and the salt together. And the last idea is salt. It's, it's quite amazing when you go in and you start circling these things. You can see that one idea leads to the next idea, which is a little different but similar because what Peter wanted was people to remember this saying. He wanted them to memorize this portion. Again, as I've said, we're gonna, this, there's going to be some review here. In the past, right, I, this is a section that I took on with fear and trepidation. Because what he's calling us to, Jesus is calling us to, is dying. He's calling us to suffer. He's calling us to lose. He says, come and follow me. We're going to lose, and we're going to lose big, and we're going to lose in the north, and we're going to lose in the south, and we're going to lose in the east and the west. Come. And, and when you first hear it, you're startled by it. And what, what I think most people need is, is a section like this that you just repeat over and over again to yourself. Why am I doing this? What is the point? What is the purpose? What is Jesus making? What is he going to make out of this losing that I'm doing? And if you memorize this section, then it's very helpful to you to recall exactly what it is you're suffering for. So that's what I, I mean. If you take these sections, it seems like a bunch of really random stuff thrown together. If you read it before we came in here today, uh, if you look at it, you're kind of like, what is, and he's talking about salt, and then he's talking about body parts, and then he's talking about giving little kids glasses of water, and what does this stuff have to do with one another? So what I want to do is go each saying at a time and figure out what the theme is. What is the theme? There's got to be something. Jesus is not just randomly talking here. He's not just throwing things out there hodgepodgey. There has got to be some kind of through line. And, if, and to frame it, there's two things that help us understand possibly where he's going. One is the story of healing the blind man, right? That one we have not left behind yet. He heals the blind man, but, right, he touches him, but the blind man can see, but he can't quite see clearly, so he heals him again, and then he can see clearly. And then he goes on, and he's doing the same thing to the disciples. So that's the immediate contest. He, he's, he keeps touching them, he keeps talking to them, because he's trying to get them to see. Also, in verse 33, what was the big ordeal on the road? Well, they were arguing over who was greatest. Right? And they, <laughs> what I like about this, I imagine, they're on this long journey through Galilee to Jerusalem, and every day at dinner, Jesus probably brings it up again and is talking about it again, and they don't, as, as usual, understand what he's talking about. So I imagine this is like multiple conversations over multiple dinners that, they just, that Peter and Mark put together. Uh, and you can just see how Jesus is repeating himself. He wants them to think about this argument that they had about who's greatest. Okay. Now we're all on the same page for context. Let's get into it and find out exactly what the theme here is. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 40. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> I can't even wait. Us? Who's the us, John? They're not following Jesus? Oh, no, they're not following us. Oh, okay. Well, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. This is the only time that Mark mentions John by name in action. He's given us his name several times, but this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark in which John does something. 
And what you see is Jesus three times tells them what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, that he's going to go there and he's going to lose. And each of those times he gets some sass, he gets a little back chat from one of the three most important disciples. First Peter does it. How dare you say such a thing? Now John, after he, right, John is struggling similarly. He's heard what Jesus has said about what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And now John is piping up because John doesn't like what Jesus is saying either. And the third time later, we're going to see that it, it's, um, it's also John. It's John and James who give him some back chat a third time. Even the most privileged, right? These are the three top dogs. These are the three lieutenants within the, the 12 disciples. Even the most privileged of the disciples fail to understand what the passion signified for the life and the mission of the disciples. It seems like they just want to convince Jesus not to do it. They have totally missed the fact that not only is Jesus going to do it, it's if they want anything to do with him, they have to go and do it too. You have to go on the way of the cross and become losers too. There's no other way. And they are not getting it. The use of the first person plural, we saw, we forbade, not following us. John here is speaking for all the disciples. They are all of one mind. <laughs> there they all are sitting there eating some, some fish tacos. And all the disciples are like, John, ask him. John, talk to him. It was going to be you this time. You're the disciple he loves. Raise your hand. And so he says, uh, yeah, yeah, us. We, we saw this guy, and then, and then we forbid him because he's not following us. Where, where's Jesus in any of those statements? John's complaint is significant. Okay? And, and in one sense, again, we've always got to think about these poor men. Right? Nobody else was given authority to do this. They're the only ones. Right? And, and I understand this. If, if there is some dude out preaching on the street... As a minister of the gospel, right, and say he's preaching down here on the corner every week, right, and every week I come into the office, I actually want to check into that guy a little bit. Who are you? What are you preaching? Right? I'm in some sense responsible for the spiritual welfare of this community, and I want to check him out a little bit. Now, that's different than going down there and like, hey, I'm going to call Doug Wilson and get him over here. Stop you if you don't stop this. Right? I mean, it's not like I'm going to turn him into the fuzz. Send delegates down from the presbytery to bind him. Nobody does that in this year. I just want to right, So we understand. John, John is worried on some level about unofficial works being done in the name of Jesus. Okay, but did he come firsthand and say, hey, Jesus, we found this guy, and he's doing things in your name, and you should talk to him and just check him out, or what's the deal with this? No, they take it upon themselves, which they do not have the authority to do, to go tell this guy to be quiet. What this echoes is a story from Moses and Joshua. Numbers chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, this is a similar story that we read. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad, where do they get these names, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And, and this is, goes right into the heart of what I'm... Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. 
If you go back, you can, right? And you look for it, you can find echoes of almost everything that happens to him, everything that he does, everything that he says, everything that's done and said to him. You can find echoes of it in the Old Testament. But what we have here is a slight difference. The disciples are not as they're not exactly jealous for Jesus' authority so much as they are for their own authority. The fact that Jesus' power was active in this unnamed man marks him off as a believer, right? He's clearly not following Satan. He's clearly um, not following Zeus around doing, right? If, if, if Jesus what, didn't have ownership of this person, this person could do nothing in Jesus' name. So right out of the gate, instead of, right, you look at him and you're like, wow, that worked. That guy did that in the name of Jesus. He must be of us. They make the, right? They're like, no, 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 no. No, no, we're not having that. We're not having some guy who has no authority over here doing things in Jesus' name. The funniest part about this whole story is that what just happened to the disciples? Jesus came down off the mountain of the transfiguration, and what did he find? The disciples couldn't cast out demons. So could you imagine the look on Jesus' face? Wait, there was somebody doing what you're supposed to be able to do that you couldn't, and you want him to stop. <laughs> I don't know. Jesus, Jesus has so much patience, I can't even. I just can't even. It was not necessary to be a direct father of Jesus to share in a conflict that has cosmic dimensions. Right? This guy clearly has heard of Jesus. He clearly understands who Jesus is. He understands what Jesus is doing. Jesus is there fighting demons, right? The disciples are like, hey, let's call fire down on this village who doesn't want to hear our preaching because they don't get who they're fighting. This guy isn't following Jesus around, but he understands who Jesus is and he's doing the works of Jesus, which is what the 12 disciples are supposed to be doing. If anyone is working for the cause to which Jesus and the 12 are committed, he cannot possibly be opposed to what they're doing. Now, men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by somebody in their own party or denomination. They are so narrow-minded that they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. Well, that church doesn't sing psalms. That church doesn't have the King James-only Bible. That church doesn't have grace. That church doesn't have the law. That church doesn't wear the funny collars and the funny hats and that thing they swing around that has incense in it. We, yeah, if there's a story about the modern church, this is it. Look at those people over there teaching them how to uh, raise their hands during worship. <laughs> how dare them? That's not what we do. They couldn't possibly be for Jesus. What I love is that, you know, the church actually is shrinking in the West. It's getting a little small. In other places, the world is growing. And who's doing it? Calvinists? No, Pentecostals. Pentecostals. You go there and you're like, this is chaos. But at the heart of some of this chaos is Jesus. And if chaos brings him glory, amen. Right? But what do we all want to do? We want to go down and be like, hey, where's the Book of Common Prayer? Where's the Book of Common Prayer? How come you guys aren't using the Book of Common Prayer? And these Anglicans go down from England where they have female bishops 
And they're giving the guys down in uh, Africa who are, you know, you know, in the Sudan where they're being murdered for being Christians, trouble because they're not using the Book of Common Prayer. So then all of the African bishops recently actually got together and excommunicated the English ones. <laughs> and the grounds were that they were, right, they were breaking God's law. God's law. Not, oh, you're not using the Book of Common Prayer. You have a homosexual woman who's a bishop. You guys are out. I'm glad they stood up for themselves. But we have lost a sense of Baxter and Lewis's mere Christianity. That phrase that is so uh, popular from C.S. Lewis had existed for quite a while. Uh, And the person who coined it, believe it or not, was a Puritan who was kind of sick of the Puritan thing. He's like, guys, there is this thing called mere Christianity in where the Apostles' Creed, there is, right, all the major Western churches, Eastern churches, have at the center the Apostles' Creed. And if you actually believe the Apostles' Creed, why is it that we're fighting over funny hats? And you're like, man, these Puritans knew what they were talking about. And Lewis, who was a r- r- working on a book about 16th century literature, read this, and that's where he got the idea from mere Christianity. In 1900, there were 16,000 Protestant denominations. Christian denominations, actually. I, was very, I went back and looked. It's not... Protestant, it's Christian denomination. 16,000 in 1900. Anybody want to take a guess at how many there are now? 45,000. That's a 2,712% increase. And this is not doctrinal purity uh, separation. This is, I'm taking my ball and going home Christianity, as I like to call it. But imperfect disciples from Antioch to Rome, from Geneva to Our Lady of Guadalajara, from Beijing to the Bible Belt, right? The unity that binds us together, that gets us on mission, is Jesus Christ. And if it's anything else, it's false. Now, what happens? We were talking about this at the book study yesterday. Um, How many of you have read uh, Genesis and and you get to the part where Lot is there, right? And the strangers come and visit him? and the whole town shows up because it's like San Francisco, and they want to sleep with the visitors, and he says, hey, have my daughters instead. And you think, what? How did this guy make it out of this town? And then you go into Hebrews 11, and he's there in the hall of faith. And what we were talking about yesterday is I am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of Lot. I'm like, how does that guy, like, hasn't Jesus met me? I would never do such a thing. And and what what it... And there are people who are Christians right now who I think the same way about. It reveals to me that, right, I am jealous for the way that I do things. I am jealous for my own greatness. And and what I am is I am at times embarrassed by the people that Jesus decides to unite me to. You're like, really, this guy, this guy, that family? Right? You read on the news, some, you know, there's some interview with some hillbilly Christian, and he just makes us all look like, Right? Oh, the tornado missed my house because I love Jesus. Like, I saw this interview, and you're thinking, oh, man. Oh, man. But, like, what would I say? Right? If I were on the TV, I'd probably equivocate in some way and talk about wind. Oh, the wind changed right at the last minute. What we need to understand is that there, are, there, there is a way of doing things that is perfect and holy and it's exactly what God intends, and none of us know exactly what that is, right? He tells us what it is. We open the Word of God, and we think, okay, this must be what he means. And so we go and do it. And then we see somebody else doing something differently, and you're like, where do you get off, bro? 
doing that in the name of Jesus. And what we have to understand is we do not have, we have not cornered the market on doing things in Jesus' name. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Does it say one liturgy? Does it say one theology? Does it say one Bible translation? Does it say one hymnal? It doesn't. It says one spirit, and that is the Lord's spirit, because that's the thing that binds us together. Right? I love, and I have grown to love, (laughs) all of you. But can you think of what other thing would bring us all together? Right? You have different affinities with people, that's true. But all of these people in this room, what else would get these people in this room together? Right? I can't think of a single thing. And here we all are. Here we all are. Okay. I think I've said enough about that part. I don't, I don't want, I want Nate to have a three-hour sermon. I don't want a three-hour sermon here. So what we, we start to see a little bit here maybe what Jesus is getting at. So we go on to Mark chapter 9, verse 41. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The offering of a cup of water to quench thirst becomes a significant act when the drink is offered to a man because he is a disciple and belongs to Jesus. I, I don't know what you guys are doing over there with that liturgy, but are you thirsty? Right? I'll give you some water. You look thirsty. I, I care more about how you're doing. I care more about serving you. I care more about giving you what you need than it, why what we're doing looks different. Jesus recognizes that a cup of water is extended not to the person, but to him. This is what he was talking about earlier. He says, when you you receive one of these little children in my name, you've received me. When you extend a cup of water to a brother, you're extending it to me. Because we're united in him, right? When my right hand gives my left hand something, it's giving itself something. So the body of Christ, when one member gives something to a needy member over here, it's giving it to itself. You're loving yourself. You're loving your neighbor like yourself. Now, his reward carries no thought of uh, deserving or of merit, right? Don't get a tray of cups of water, go down to the park, and think you're going to earn your way into heaven. That's not what I mean. It's not what is being taught here. It serves rather to stress that God's awareness that for all who share in Jesus' work, there are no distinctions between trivial and important. What does that guy what does that guy think about the manuscript tradition? Should we go with the Mesoratic text? I don't know. Are you thirsty? I can give you some water. Oh, okay, this is uh, this guy is of the kingdom of heaven. Well wait, he doesn't explain the, the text problem between Does anyone even, right? I don't even really know what I'm talking about. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? No, who cares? Give the guy a cup of water, right? When when you show up at the pearly gates, there's not going to be a test. This is a joke that um, I heard. There's a guy, uh, it's a joke I heard that's really good. So there's this guy who studies grace his whole life. (laughs) He just, he, he is like, he wrote... The book on grace. He understands grace. He, he goes around and he teaches it. He preaches it all the time. He gets to heaven. And Peter says, hey, here, here's a test on, on grace. And if you pass, you can get in. 
And the guy takes the paper and takes the pen. Oh, no. And he hands it back and he said, okay, there you go. Come on in. Right? Because it's even things like grace, we want to turn it into a doctrinal thing that is a test. We want to turn it into the kind of thing where if you don't nail it, you're out. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, whoever serves someone who is in need is in. See, he's talking to John. And if you ever, when you get into the epistles of John, you read things. And when you read them, think of this story. Think of them sitting there, and and he's saying, hey, I tried to stop this guy, right? He's the apostle of love, they call him, for goodness sakes. And he's trying to stop somebody from doing the very thing that Jesus wants the disciples to do. But if you go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. That's what... Jesus was using. He had a little child there in the midst of them having this conversation. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you think John learned the lesson? He did. And it's a lesson that we still need to learn. And and to build on it, Jesus goes on in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If you're going to cause that guy to stumble, John, put a millstone around your neck and just hop in the ocean and just get it over with. Please, spare us. Think about this. If you're going to cause someone who is faithfully serving Jesus Christ to stumble and and, and you're going to throw shade at them and you're going to confuse them about what exactly it means to serve him, when you yourself are far from the kingdom of heaven at that moment... And in order to protect the people of God, we should tie a millstone around your neck and hurl you into Lake Washington. I, I, I do not think we stop and think about the kinds of things Jesus says sometimes. You know, you know what would be better for everybody, actually, John? Is to just chuck you in the ocean. We'll roll you out there. We'll tie some bricks to your feet. I mean, what, is Jesus a mobster now? This is good, fellas. The stern warning has immediate relevance for those who had sought to prevent the exercise of faith in Jesus' name. No, no, don't do it that way. How many people have left the faith because they hear varying messages that just confuse them? Right? Oh, you're not doing it right. Well, that person had need all along, and if you would have helped them, you would have helped them, right? If you would have given them the thing they physically needed, the thing that was causing them, right, to suffer, if you would have healed them, then what you would have done is helped their faith along instead of worrying about how they're doing it so much. Millstones were extremely heavy. I, don't, I think, right, I don't want anyone to be confused here as what, what exactly is a millstone. Uh, there was a handheld one, and there was one that was pulled around by a donkey. Okay? So a handheld one, a, a lady would use it. So how heavy is that, really? Well, that's not the one he mentions, actually. In Greek, it's the one that you pull around with a donkey. So I don't even think they had a boat that could have gotten this thing out into the ocean. They would have just had to tie the guy to it and roll it down a hill. <laughs> Jesus the mobster. It's better to just snuff him out than to get him to right than let him stumble my children. 
Jesus is a very dangerous man. Death without burial was a terrible thing to a Jew. To, to die and not be buried was horrible, which is why deaths at sea were horrible. Right? He, he knows his audience very well, and he's like, I'm not just going to threaten them. I'm going to threaten them in a way that they know is, is, it, it curses them, and it, and it puts them outside the people of God. And what's very interesting is Acts chapter 5, verse 37. They talk about a man who was, um, he started a riot, and he was starting a, an insurrection. And the thing that the Romans did was tie a millstone around his neck and chuck him in the ocean. And that's what Jesus is referencing to his own disciples. That doesn't sound like the kind of Jesus that you're going to read about in a book at Lifeway. Right? Jesus threatening to crack kneecaps and give, right, put, set people's feet in a bucket of cement and then chuck them into the water. Like That doesn't... And, and this is in a conversation in which Jesus is trying to get them to understand what peace means. <laughs> I, this is fascinating to me, right? And, and, and what we don't understand is what the way of peace sometimes actually means for Christians. And as a metaphor, war is always very helpful in this, but on D-Day, there they are on Utah Beach, on Causeway 4, what is the way of peace? You're standing there with your M1 on the beach, you're soaking wet, you're tired. What is the way of peace at that way, at that point? Well, it's up Causeway 4 where the machine guns are, and in order to get the machine guns to stop shooting at you, you got to shoot the person, right? you got to go up there and you got to fight. And this is all along. This is what Jesus is trying to get them to see. There is a war going on. There is a war going on. And if you're not going to get in the mix and you're not going to fight the way that I am fighting, if you're not going to pursue peace up this causeway, please throw yourself back in the ocean. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, thrown in the sea with a millstone tied around your neck, thrown into hell. See the connection there? thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These verses constitute a concrete call to obedience, which renews the radical demands of Jesus' discipleship, self-renunciation and wholehearted devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone, and anything that stands in your way from doing that, get rid of it. Right? You're going to cause people to stumble. I'm going to tie a millstone around your neck. It's better, and we're going to chuck you in the ocean. Your hand's causing you to sin. Get rid of it. Your eye, get rid of it. It's better to be thrown into the sea or, or thrown into hell than to not have this complete and utter total devotion to Jesus Christ. So you have this, he keeps making this comparison. It's better, right, to enter life limping. Remember, we talked about that recently. There was somebody who was wrestling with God and they ended up limping. And it was better for him to limp his way into heaven than to be chucked into the fire that doesn't stop where there are worms that never are satiated. 
This is not, however, a, uh, just... <laughs> Jesus, please, do not go home, and if your hand is causing you to sin, chop it off. Okay, let's, let's back up. Okay, this is a metaphor. But what is it a metaphor for? Job chapter 31. In, in Job chapter 31, Job is trying desperately to make the final appeal that he is an innocent man who loves God. Right? He's had, for 30 chapters, he's had to listen to the nonsense of his friends. My, my son was recently reading this book, and he just, eh, in the morning, you hear him just sighing. Like, what's the matter, son? These friends of Job's are idiots. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. Now the key is to not be like them. So Job has had to listen to all this. And he gets to 31, and he's trying to make the appeal about how innocent he is. And this is what he says in verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Verse 5. If, if, I, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Verse 7. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands. This is something that they call merism. This is where the foot and the hand and the eye or ear, what you're signifying is the whole person. Right? You're, you're, you're pointing to a part of your body on, on the lower part, on the mid part, and on the high part. And what you're signifying is my whole person. Job is arguing, I in total have been, I've been totally devoted to God. You will not find any wickedness in, my, in the way that I've walked and the things that my hands have touched or the things that my eyes have seen. And, and, and so what it represents is don't go chop your hand off with a butcher knife. It, what he wants, the Lord Jesus, is he wants you completely devoted to him from your hand to your foot to your eye. Now, he says eye instead of ear. Why? Because there's something else he's thinking of, but he's changed it a little bit. If we go back to Leviticus chapter 8, verse 22 through 24, right? this is how the high priest used to become the high priest. Moses presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and we should get a ram of ordination, by the way. When we brought Nate on, we should have got a ram of ordination, then we could have had a barbecue. Well, we'll talk about that at the elders' meeting. I'm sorry. He gets the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And I have been wondering about this for probably 10 years until this week. And I'm sitting there, I was like, there's something oddly familiar about this thing that Jesus is saying. Oh, this part that I've never understood. But he doesn't say earlobe. Jesus says eye, because what he's trying to heal is their blindness. Remember the blind man? He changes the metaphor, but what he wants is from head to toe, utter and complete devotion to Jesus Christ. He wants all of you. He doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want you leaving some of yourself behind. He wants all of you. He wants the entire person. In, token, in a token fashion, the entire body was consecrated to the Lord's service, and by accepting the smearing, the priest acknowledged the obligations inherent in the symbolism. Hereafter, he must listen carefully to God's pronouncements. His hands must be devoted entirely to those things connected with the Lord's work, handing out water. His feet must always be directed in such a manner that they will be, be walking continually in the ways of the Lord. 
This is what Jesus wants. You're, he, they're arguing about who's greater. They're, they're trying to stop some poor guy who, who's doing the work they couldn't themselves do anymore. You guys are focused on the wrong thing. You're, you're divided. You're, you're, they're double-tongued. They're double-minded. They're distracted. What he wants is he wants the whole person, and he wants the whole person doing the things that he's doing, devoted to the way of the cross. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and the table of demons. You cannot go in two different directions at the same time. And Jesus is is now getting into the explanation that there are only two destinations. Verse 44, this word translated as hell, is actually Gehenna. Uh, They really should just translate it as Gehenna. Because then people will ask, well, what's that? And then... Actually, it's very interesting what Gehenna is and where all the symbolism for hell that we have comes from. Gehenna is from the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where in the book of Jeremiah, infants were formerly sacrificed to the god Moloch. So there's this spot where people used to take their kids out there and sacrifice them to the the no-god Moloch. Josiah, who was a good king, desecrated this pagan site so that they would no longer use it. And he consigned it to the burning of animal entrails and garbage and waste. So like, you know, the only thing that this land that these people have done, the only thing we can use this for now is a garbage heap. And so they take all the garbage out there and they light it on fire and generation after generation after generation after generation throws their trash on this heap. So can you imagine the kind of maggots and worms that live out there? Can you imagine this smoldering fire that never, because you never let it go out, because there's never an end to the amount of garbage you have. During the intertestamental period, what went on at this site began to provide stock images for the concept of hell. That's why he's referring to worms that, don't, that are always hungry. This is why he's, re- he's referring to a fire that is never put out. Now, what's fascinating here is that we never hear Jesus explaining this place to unbelievers. Why? Why is he never telling unbelievers about this place that they're most likely going to go? He's only explaining it to believers. Why, why would he do that? He's o- he only ever really expounds on what hell is. He only, he, he's here with his 12 disciples, and he's warning them about this place called hell. When he's out there with the prostitutes and the publicans, he's not explaining it. He explains heaven to them. Right? And, and because if you look at it from the scribes and the Pharisees' point of view, they think, all, right, what, for them, all the people who are near to heaven are actually nearer to hell. And over here, all the people they think are nearer to hell are nearer to heaven. And so he's got to explain th- the opposite of what we think he ought to explain to each group. He has to explain to them because people who are on the outside, right, that guy who has his wounds licked by the dogs, he thinks he's far from heaven, but Jesus is like, no, 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 I need to explain what heaven is like to you because you're going there. And here's all the Pharisees, and they think they're going to heaven, and he's got, right, his disciples, he's got to explain hell because if you're not careful, guys, that's where you're going because of presumption. Presumption. Jesus is dealing with their arrogance. You guys think you're great in the kingdom of heaven. If you don't watch out, you're going to be in a very hot place where there's worms that never grow. They're never done eating. And that's gross. And so he's trying to scare them. 
C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity states this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. Your whole life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or into a hellish hellish creature. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one or the other state. And what the people of God are more prone to do than anything else is to deceive themselves and not deal with sin, right? They don't deal with the issues in their own lives. They don't deal with sin in their household. They don't deal with sin in the community. They're not serving anybody with cups of water. What we tend to do is we tend to worry about, wait, why are those guys over there not doing it the right way? Well, how are you doing? You're worried about that guy's house. How's your house? Right? You're worried about the Pentecostals. How are the Presbyterians? Now, this, stepping away from Gehenna for a moment, he goes back to this idea of the, of the, the earlobe and the thumb and the, fing, and the toe, this whole body sacrifice. Because verse 49 and 50, Mark is the only one that, that ever uh, states this, and it is, it is very strange. It is a, one of the strangest things, I think, that is recorded that Jesus says. And this is what it says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is here speaking of two kinds of fire. Right? There's two fires burning. Both of them are going to accomplish the same thing, purification. Hell, right? Gehenna is a place where we purify the garbage into ash. You get sick from garbage. You get sick from festering entrails of dead animals. You know what doesn't make you sick is ashes. It's clean at that point. There is, however, another fire that also purifies, and what he is referencing here is are, are in the Old Testament when they had um, sacrifices. Because this is very difficult for us to understand, but this is something that we need to wrap our minds around. They, you go and you put your hands on the animal, and you say, this animal has committed, um, has committed the sin of theft. I, I stole, and, and that's what I have done, and I need to now make amends for that, and so I'm going to take this animal, and it stole, and now what we're going to do is slaughter it and chop it up, and, we're gonna, and it becomes me. It becomes me. It's going to die now because I ought to die. And so they, they chop it up, and they, put the, they arrange the food, up on the altar, and they start splashing the blood on it, and then they light it on fire, and what happens to it? Is it becomes smoke. And there above the altar is a pillar of smoke. If you go back to the tabernacle, and who is the pillar of smoke? God. So the, the person who's burned on the altar becomes one with God. And God consumes him. And it says in Leviticus, he eats he eats the sacrifice. And then everybody, the priest and the, and the person who burned it, sit down and have a meal together. Because what's being consumed is the, is the worshiper. And so when you put yourself on the altar, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 through 16. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. It's the wrong one. Oh, here it is. Okay. I apologize, everyone. In Romans 12, verse 1, he says, Offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So that moment where they arrange everything up on the altar and they're about to light it on fire, they take a giant scoop of salt and they dump it all over it. Why? Well, because salt makes food taste better. Right? And God likes good tasting food. Right? Have you ever eaten chicken and you're just thinking, what? And you take a little salt and you put salt on it. You don't put enough salt on it so that the chicken tastes like salt. Right? This is something that is I still don't quite understand how my wife does that. I'm like, I add salt and everything tastes like salt. She adds salt and it tastes like itself, but better. Right? Because God on the altar wants salted beef. He wants bacon. He wants flavor. He wants a preservative, right? Because that's the other thing salt does. You take a hunk of meat and you leave it there, it's going to rot. You put salt on it, what happens? doesn't rot. He doesn't want rotting hulks up on the altar. He wants salted hulks up on the altar because he's hungry. <laughs> he's a hungry God. And he, he wants, right? He, Jesus says, you become one with the Father through Jesus Christ. You're absorbed into God. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. And on that sacrifice, he wants you to pour salt. And what's the salt? Peace. That's what it is. He wants you to live at peace with one another. He doesn't want you arguing over who's greater. He doesn't want you out there causing fights and distracting people from the way that they, from serving God because they're not doing it the same way as you. He wants peace. He wants you to give the person who is thirsty a glass of water. He wants you to forgive sins. He wants you to seek forgiveness for sins. He wants peace. That's the salt that's on the sacrifice. That is what this whole section is about. Peace. And he'll get it. If he's got to tie a millstone around your neck and chuck you into the ocean, he'll get it. And that is not the kind of peace that we tend to think of. Right? There's going to be blood. There is going to be blood. It's going to be his or it's going to be yours. There is going to be slaughter. <laughs> right? And you either slaughter yourself or he'll slaughter yourself. This is what he's trying to get them to understand. Abandon everything. Put the blood right on your earlobe, on your thumb, on your, on your toe. Devote yourself from your eye to your hand to your foot to me. Put yourself up there. And don't just put yourself up there. Don't just come to church and go through the motions. What I really want is for you to dump the salt of peace all over it. Are you at peace with your spouse? Are you at peace with your children? Are you at peace with your siblings? Are you at peace with your neighbor? Are you at peace with everyone in this church? Are there people in your life who you do not have peace with? If not, there's no salt on your sacrifice. And, and, and I know, I know what life is like. There are people that you have not had peace with, some of you, probably for decades. I'm only 38 and I've got people I have not had peace with for that long. And, and, and right? And what happens? I don't want to serve them. Right? I, all I want to do is sit around and talk about how they're not doing things the right way. But have I ever gone and offered them a cup of water? How about you? 
Right? This is, this is how you lead. <laughs> you don't just tell people to do things that you know you yourself don't need to do. That you're not in your own life working on. Who is it that you don't have peace with that you need to go and make peace with? Probably sitting right in this room. Probably drove here with them. If we're honest. Because Christian, oh, okay, yeah, he wants me to make a sacrifice. Okay, so I'm going I'm to lay myself on the altar. Where's the salt? He didn't bring any, right? And so well, all you got is this putrid, disgusting, filthy thing up there. Where's the salt? Therefore, it says in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Humility and gentleness. Unity of the spirit. Are, are you at war in your marriage? Are you at war with your kids? Are you, there's war in your life. And if you want peace, what you need to do is you need to, there's only one way, and that is the way of the cross. Deny yourself, renunciate yourself, and pursue Christ, pursue peace, unity. And the only way to have unity in marriage, the only way to have unity in families, the only way to have unity at work, the only way to have real unity in a church is Jesus. Not liturgy. Not Psalms only. Not King James only. Not this, not that. Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that unifies people. Really. And, and, and if you're pursuing any other way, what you will ne- it, it will run away from you. And you will, you will pursue something that you will never find. What Jesus wants is total devotion. And total devotion to him is total devotion to the people sitting in this room. Total devotion to him is total devotion to anybody who sits in a church and says that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's, that's total devotion. right? John makes this point. Show me that you love Jesus by how you love the brothers. And what we want is a religion where it's me and it's Jesus, and all I got to do is I got to repent to Jesus. I got to tell him what I did. I got to be right with him all the time. And what we forget is the part that goes sideways, out in every direction. And so go from here and pursue peace. Pursue the salt that makes the sacrifice that you, that you are trying to offer to God pleasing to him and, and tasty to him. That's the aroma he likes. That's the flavor he likes. It's not just a sacrifice, but a sacrifice with a heap of salt on it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it does not um, return to you empty. We thank you for the the myriad of ways uh, that you have for teaching us your greatness and your goodness, for teaching us about humility and service. Lord God, you are mighty, and your works are perfect. And your word is perfect. And every time we, we start to think that we have understand it really well, there is more to it that reveals just how much we need your son. For everyone in this room who is not at perfect and complete peace, 
that, that doesn't have complete and perfect peace in their lives, I pray, Lord God, that you would give them wisdom and humility to pursue it. That they would not just offer up themselves to you, Lord God, but they would offer up themselves to one another in the name of Jesus Christ. And amen.